Amen. Thank you, guys. That was sweet. Sweet worship. Hey, how are you guys doing? Uh, uh, okay, good, good. Um, man, I'm excited about tonight. I am... Uh, I don't really get nervous speaking in public, um, but I am nervous about tonight, um, and I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it has something to do with the fact that we're going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and, uh, and that's an awesome, just this incredibly awesome, rich, um, amazing passage in, in Scripture in the New Testament, and, uh, and I know myself and, uh, and I know that I am very inadequate to preach the 10 verses that I'm going to get to preach tonight. And so I think I'm feeling this, man, this surrender that I'm trying to give over to say, I know I'm inadequate. And my real prayer and hope um, really this past week has been that I don't know a lot of you guys, but my prayer and hope is that, man, you get your life changed tonight in some way. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what you need. I don't know what you came in here with tonight. But man, my hope and prayer is that God shows up in your life in a way tonight and just changes some stuff for the better uh, and just wrecks some stuff and knocks some stuff out that um, maybe has been keeping you from joy and life and all these awesome things. I know that's what this passage has done in my life in some big ways, and so uh, I just stand here a woefully inadequate preacher to be able to preach this, but confident in what the Holy Spirit will do and his power and his words and not needing mine. So uh, yeah, just a little confession at the top of the, top of the hour to you. Okay, so um, here's, here's what we're going to do. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, we've got Bibles underneath. If actually someone would shout out, if somebody's using one of those, shout out the page number, that would be helpful. Uh, Ephesians is towards the back of the book. What is it? 972? 976? Okay, so 976, if you want to grab one of those Bibles. We're going to throw the verses up here on the screen, too, if that's easier and less distracting. Um, while you're flipping there, I'm going to tell you a story about a bad idea. Um, it's going to tie in, right? So, um, so you know how you have some ideas that you think, man, that's a really, really good idea. That is an amazing good idea. And then when it comes to execution, you realize that's a really bad idea. That was a horrible, horrible idea. Um, this is kind of one of the, I have those on a daily basis. Like I was like, hey, what if renovate, we just turn like, we just fill the room full of bubbles, you know, it just becomes this massive foam party. And then like Josh was like, man, shouldn't it be about Jesus? And I was like, yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so here, here's a, a story that my, this is my cousin. So my cousin had this idea, and honestly, when he pitched it to me, I was like, that's amazing. Execution, it was a disaster. You'll see why. But he, he uh, and I've told this story before, so I apologize if you've heard it. <laughs> it's a good story, so you'll enjoy it a second time, too. Um, so he was like, man, I'm going to throw a surprise birthday party for my best friend, right? That was what my cousin was saying. And I don't actually know the best friend's name, so we're just going to call him Barry, right? Because that's a fake name. Nobody's named Barry. Is anybody actually named Barry? See? We're going to call him Barry. Um, that was a gamble, because if you were Barry in here, you were going to feel really weird. Or you are Barry, and you didn't say anything just then, and you feel even weirder. Okay, here we go. So, so he's throwing a birthday party for Barry, and he's like, man, I'm going to throw this great birthday party for Barry, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a surprise birthday party, but not a traditional surprise party where, you know, you're like, hey, man, let's come over to my house, and you walk in, and you got all these people in your house, and, but like, we're going to do an epic surprise party, and here's what we're going to do. We are going to dress up as masked men, and we're going to kidnap Barry, and we're going to take Barry, and we're going to put him in the trunk of a car and close it, and then we're going to drive him to the location. He thinks he's going to die, but we're actually going to pop the trunk, and it's going to be his surprise birthday party, which when that idea, when I heard that idea, I thought, that is brilliant. 
here's how it went down. Uh, they decided, uh, you know, my cousin and Barry and some other guys, there's like five guys, four or five guys, I'm not sure. They all decide, hey, we're going to go fishing. And so they all go to White Rock Lake, which is kind of over in the area we were from, back in the Garland area. And uh, so they're fishing on a dock in White Rock Lake. And then what happened was kind of one at a time, these guys would kind of filter off and kind of come up with an excuse to go back to the car. And what they were really doing was going back to the car, changing into terrorist garb, and then be ready to pounce on him later. And so like a couple guys would be like, oh man, we forgot the cooler. We're going to go get the cooler. And so it was like, you know, three guys on the dock. And then one guy's like, yeah, I got to go to the bathroom. So he'd wander. So then it's just the birthday boy, and, and one friend left. And then that guy's like, yeah, I'm, I gotta go to the bathroom too, or some excuse. And he wanders off, and so they've all, all of his friends have abandoned him on his birthday on the dock, fishing by himself, because they've all put on black clothes, sweaters, gloves, ski masks, the whole deal, right? True story. So they all dress like they're just terrorist mob, and the birthday guy's just sitting there on the dock, and it's starting to get late, and he's like, man, this is weird, and he's starting to get a little spooked, and the sun's starting to go down, and it's starting to get a little, you know, that kind of day where it's like, okay, man, there's going to be like clowns walking through the woods or something scary. And so he's just starting to get scared in and of himself. So he's like, man, I'm going to go check on my friends. So he gets up and starts walking back towards the car to see where all of his friends are, and he looks up, and he sees on the top of the hill above him all black, guy dressed in all black, ski mask, gloves, the whole deal. And he freaks out, obviously. And he starts to back up, and he looks to his left. There's another guy, all black, you know, ski mask, the whole deal. Looks to his right, and they flanked him, right? They've surrounded him, and they're moving closer and closer towards him. So he just flips out, right? Just starts screaming and running through the woods as fast as he can and as loud as he can. And they're cornering him, and they're tackling him, and he's kicking them in the skull, and he's running some more, and they're grabbing him, and he's punching them, right? He's trying to gouge a guy's eye out. They have duct tape, and they're trying to duct tape him, but then at some point, he gets into the water, and so the duct tape's losing its stickiness. One guy almost drowns. It's this horrible, horrible thing. A guy's have broken ribs because he thinks he's dying. Oh, and this is, this is one of my favorite parts. So these guys were all Christians and solid, and they loved Jesus. No joke, no joke. This is my favorite part of the story. While he's doing this, right, while he's getting attacked, essentially, and getting, they're trying to duct tape him, and these four or five guys are, are dogpiling him, he is preaching the gospel to them. <laughs> he, thinks, he thinks these guys just killed his friends systematically one at a time, right? So he thinks these guys are murderers. He's next. And so he is saying, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven, while they're screaming, and, and he's in the name of Jesus, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's just, and he's just preaching over him, and then at the same time, he's like dislocating somebody's arm and biting them so they bleed, right, and spitting out pieces of their arm, right? It's just this gory mess, and then eventually, one of the guys, I don't know if it was my cousin or who it was, is like, this, okay, this is, this is out of hand. This idea was good. It is not, takes off his mask, right? And they're all exhausted, and he's on the ground, and he sees his buddy now in a mask, and he's slowly processing, and they all kind of take off their masks. And they're like, just kidding. <laughs> and he loses it, man. He just starts bawling, crying, right? Just weeping, weeping like from the soul, weeping and weeping and dry heaving, maybe, you know, just, just overwhelmed with emotion. And they're all like, Happy birthday, Barry. <laughs> and, he's and he's just emotional. And he th I mean, he's all, these, all these emotions have run through his mind. He's got just this. I mean, he's just overwhelmed. And, uh, and then they're, they have to tell him. They're like, hey, because um, he's shaking. And he's like, hey, um, there's like 30 friends waiting for us at the house. We kind of got to go. 
And so they drive him to the house, and he walks in just shaking the whole time. And his like, parents are there, and he's hugging him and holding him like never before and weeping and snot. <clears throat> and and just, just one of those things that you're like, man. And, and he sees all of his friends and family, and every time he sees a new person, you know, obviously his mom and his dad and his sister, he's hugging and crying. And then he sees like the guy who lives in the, cross, uh, the, the apartment across the hall. He's hugging him and weeping him, saying, oh, life is so good, and, and all these things. And so um, one of the things that happened in this situation, and this is, what, this is why Ephesians 2 reminded me of it, is, man, what happened with this, outside of it being a horrible idea, although Good idea, poorly executed. I could have come up with a better way. You just do the ether ray, and then you just you don't have to deal with it. You just gas him, and then there's no struggle. That's what you should. So that, take notes if you had that idea. Just gas him, or like shoot a dart in his neck, and then he passes out, and then let him wake up in the trunk, be scared for just a little bit. Anyway, here it is. This guy thinks he's dead. He thinks all his friends are dead. Right, he thinks his life is over. And at that birthday party, that birthday party, he was more joy-filled and alive and worshiping Jesus like he had never worshiped Jesus, right? It was inadvertently this unbelievably emotionally awesome gift because he thought this is the end. And now he's with all of his loved ones and he realizes I have gone from what I thought was death to now life. Death to life. Man, for us as um, just people living on this globe, man, there is a story that God is telling. And Ephesians 2 is un- going to unpack and kind of unveil this idea that, man, there is death, and then God is calling us to life. And it is a powerful, powerful transition. And there's a powerful God at, desi- at designing that transition of how we go from death to life, how some of us have gone from death to life and yet so quickly forget the life we've been called to. I really believe that Ephesians 2, this message in Ephesians 2 that Paul, the writer of the book of Ephesians, writes, it is a message of hope to anyone, to anyone who is living a life of death. And we're gonna unpack what that means, but anyone living that life of just saying, man, this is not life. This is not satisfying, this is not fulfilling, this is not, I'm not where I should be, this is not, how God has called me. This is not how I'm supposed to be living. This is a message of hope in these 10 verses that we're gonna study tonight. It is a message to remind anyone who maybe is in Christ and has made that commitment and made that step and is walking in Christ and is is saved, right? The Christian vernacular for that. And they are saved and yet this is a message to remind us of what we have been saved to. What we have been saved to leading us to worship and leading us to have more freedom and leading us to depth for that life. And to anyone and everyone, we need this. Paul lays out as clear as anywhere in Scripture our spiritual situation and the spiritual solution. He starts with the bad news. And so we're just going to read it, study it, and beg the Holy Spirit to do with it what he will. Um, but he's going to start with the bad news. So here's what you got to promise me. You can't leave halfway through the sermon, Okay. Because he's going to start with the bad news. And if you leave halfway through the sermon, then it's just going to feel like fire and brimstone and hell and judgment. And don't leave during the first half of the sermon. Or if you do, text me and I'll just preach the second half to you. Um, Okay, verse 1 in chapter 2. It'll be up there on the screen for you too. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, stop right there. You were dead, right? You were dead. That's what, that's what the word of God is saying right here tonight is this big concept that we can't, get our, we can't leave without getting our, our hearts and our hands and our, our minds around this concept that you were dead. Somewhere along the way, in Christianity, or even just in my life, I just practically apply this to my life. I fell into this trap. I fell into this, this lie, um, this very non-biblical idea that we aren't really dead, we're just stranded. You know, I'm not really dead, right? Spiritually, I wasn't dead. I was just kind of stranded, right? Dead doesn't work its way out of death, right? Dead is dead. Dead is not, um, is not you on a life raft paddling towards God. Dead is the bottom of the ocean dead, needing a savior to come down and rescue you and bring him up to him and resuscitate you. That is, is death. And yet somewhere along the line, I think we kind of trade that in and we kind of soften those edges and we say, well, yeah, we need kind of God to kind of fill the gap for us. Maybe we get 90% and he's 10, or maybe we get 10% and he's 90, but we kind, of, we kind of need that God to just kind of fill that last compartment to complete us. Theologically and biblically, that's not, that's not what we see in Scripture throughout the Bible. We see, no, this idea that I am dead. I, I bring nothing to the table. I bring nothing to the table. I am dead. We also fall into this idea of Christianity right, becoming this list, and that's how I can bring things to the table. That's how I can paddle my way towards God is, well, I'm not fully dead, but really I just need to follow the right rules, right? I need to follow the right rules. There's a, somewhere along the way, I bought into this idea that there's this list, and if I keep the list and I do the good things, I get God, and if I do the bad things, I get hell, and, and that's not in Scripture. That's not here. In fact, these passages are going to explicitly press against that kind of false gospel. You don't earn it. So much of what somebody from the outside, and maybe this is you, maybe this is your story, and I love that you're here. I want you to hear this. Now, we are not saved because you show up to church and you do a lot of good things and you just try to tip the scale in your balance. We are dead, it says. No amount of list keeping, no amount of paddling with good works and good stuff is gonna get me there. And Paul uses in this passage these three these three images to kind of illustrate this death, I think they're really interesting. And so I just want to see, because I think he's doing this intentionally. I believe he's doing this intentionally to set some contrast. Look what he says. He says, man, you're walking in the course of the world, right? You're walking in the course of the world, not what God would have you do, but the course of the world, which is kind of this, this illustration of, man, just sin and, and whatever you want to do and living for yourself and just kind of indulging in the world, right? Walking in the course of the world and then following the prince of the power of the air, which is this way that he's talking about Satan, right? Following the prince of the power of the air is a reference to Satan. And I think the contrast there shouldn't be lost on us, right? We know Jesus is the son of God. We believe that. That's not new to you if you live in Texas, right? You've heard that. If you grew up in this country, you've heard, yeah, Jesus, we believe he's the son of God. Well, here we're following the wrong prince, right? We're following the, the prince of the power of the air. We're walking in the course of the world and with the spirit of the sons of disobedience. So we've got the wrong prince, the wrong spirit, the wrong course that we're walk, walking on, and this all leads to death. Look at verse three. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, of the body and the mind, 
and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This death that Paul's talking about, it applies to all of us, right? This bad news that he's setting up, this applies to all of us. We were all there. We were all, he uses this term, children of wrath. What's that mean? What's it mean to be a child of wrath, right? Um, What he's talking about is we are children that belong under God's wrath. Sounds pretty harsh, right? Like that is, I mean, that is fire and brimstone. God's wrath is upon us. This sermon is going straight in that direction. Here's, here's the argument I would make. And biblically, this is what we see. Um, God's wrath is just. Right? God's wrath is just towards us. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give an illustration. Um, let's, say, let's say I grab a guy and I twist his arm behind his back. Right? I twist his arm behind his back out of, out of just wrath, and then I kick him in the legs. I kick him in the kneecaps to really get him on the ground, and then, I, and then I force him on the ground, and then I just put all my weight on him and put my knee in his back, and I just put all my weight and hold him down to the ground. Right? You would hear that, and you'd be like, oh, Ben, that is really uh, extreme. You got a lot of wrath going on. That seems a little inappropriate. Okay, so what if I told you this story where um, I've got two boys, right? What if I told you that there's a man in my house who has a knife and he's just, this is graphic, but he's just stabbed my oldest son, Charlie, who's about to turn four in a couple of weeks. Then he stabbed my oldest son and my oldest son is laying in his bedroom floor bleeding and now he's walking across the hall to my youngest son's bedroom who just turned one years old. And then You hear the story about me grabbing his arm, twisting it behind his back, hitting him in the kneecap so he'll go down, forcing all of my weight to keep him on the ground and subdue him. You would think, wow, that is really, really just and appropriate. In order for us to wrap our heads and our hearts and humble ourselves under the idea that we were children of wrath, we've got to understand our perspective in this. We've got to understand who we are and who God is. We've got to wrestle honestly with this idea that among whom we all once lived, this counter to God life, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We deserve hell. Right? We deserve hell. Uh... I love you guys. If I made a list of my favorite people in the world, I feel like a high percentage of the people who I love the most would be in this room. Some of my favorite people are in this room. Um, And so out of love, out of love, I am saying and preaching to you tonight, we deserve hell. We've got to wrestle with that and, and weigh that and understand that and appreciate that. What is that? What is even hell, right? Hell is the absence of God. It's God removing himself for all eternity, right? And so in doing that, the absence of God is simultaneously the absence of all good things because all good things are from God. And so it is the absence of joy. It is the absence of comfort. It is the absence, absence of satisfaction in our life. It's the absence of humor and relational community. And it is the absence of all good things. And so hell is this removal. That we are all, says Paul, destined towards. 
We all deserve that. That is our default position, right? And if you're saying, Ben, you're too hard on yourself, no, I'm not. I know myself, and I'm not. And I, and I know who this God is, and I know enough of who this God is to, to make me stare in wonder and say, he is holy and perfect and worthy, and I am rebellious. You know what I do? I take the good things of God, and I find ways to pervert them, right? I take the good things of God. We do this, right? All of my struggles of lust in my life have been a perversion of a really good thing that God has created. And so when we wander into lust, right, it's not that, it's not that sex is bad, right? It's not that sexuality and that expression is a bad thing. It's that I take it and it's perverted by our world. And we want to do it in our own way and we want to be our own God. And so we wander into those roads and we wander into, we take food that's good and, and instead we use it for gluttony or, or we have this love-hate relationship because we, we hate it and we believe we have to have this certain image we take fear and anxiety, we take money, we take comfort, and we pervert them. And I take my role as this man who's been created to bring glory to God and live this, live this incredibly satisfying life bringing glory to God, and I say, you know what? I want that throne. I want, I want the kingdom to revolve around me. I want my satisfaction. I want for it to be about me. And so I, I dethrone God, and I say, I'm going to be, it's all about my glory, my worship. And inadvertently, in our, this is our sin tendency to go towards that direction. And maybe you don't even know you're doing it that consciously. And I could sit here, and I could try to make a lot of illustrations and arguments to say, man, look at the sin in your life. Look at, look at the things that are going to separate you from this holy God, and make arguments about the holiness of God, and and try to reveal whatever your particular vice is that you, that you keep going back to to satisfy you that's not satisfying you. And it keeps leaving you empty and it keeps leaving you more broken and it keeps leaving you disconnected from this thing that maybe you identify it as God or maybe you don't. Maybe you haven't identified that what that's disconnecting you from is the God who's given you purpose in life and designed you and wants you to have joy and life abundantly. And so I can do that, but the reality is we need the Holy Spirit to do that. And for some of you guys, you're like, what the heck does that mean? But that's what we need. I need the Holy Spirit to bring that conviction. And as I sit here and I, I worship and I sing to him and I sit here and I pray, Lord, convict me, show me. And I believe that if you're in this room and as I'm preaching this, I don't have to make those arguments because I believe the Holy Spirit's going to bring that up and he's going to say, hey, I love you. We're going to talk about that here in a second, how much he loves us, but there's something that is separating us. Or maybe you are in Christ and he is yours and nothing can ever separate you, but he said, he's, he's bringing up some sin and saying, hey, look, I'm never leaving you, but you are not walking the life that I have paved the way for. You're walking this life that is less than what I want for you. I want the Holy Spirit so badly to do that in your life tonight. I hope he will. I expect him to. In the name of Jesus, please do that. Please do that, Lord. So I deserve this thing. I deserve this hell. Man, it'd be really unloving for uh, a doctor who finds out you have cancer. You get some tests run, and he goes, and he gets the results, and he's in his room, in his, in his office, and he, he gets the results back, and you're in the, you know, you're in the waiting room, and he's like, oh, man, this person's got cancer, but, man, that's going to be a really awkward conversation, so I'm just going to tell them they're fine. 
But what a horrible doctor. Right? Like what a horrible doctor that would be is if there is this condition that is going to cost you your life, nobody says it. And I think we're so afraid of being honest and saying, man, what do I deserve? I know myself, man. I'm a 34-year-old pastor. Right? I've been in vocational ministry for the last dozen years. Man, I know Ben's default. I, I deserve hell. And the good in me, check this out, the good in me, which by the grace of God, there's a lot of, and I've given a lot of, I've had a lot of joy and a lot of compassion, and that's by the grace of God. That's his spirit in me working. That's what that looks like. And so if you're like, man, what, man, Ben's really hard on himself. No, that the good is the spirit of God working in me. Our default, man, we are all children of wrath. We don't have to work at that. I don't have to get up and read the satanic Bible to prepare myself for that way. That is our default position if I passively allow myself to walk forward, that's where we're going to go. Heavy, heavy three verses. Really heavy three verses. I deserve his wrath. Children of wrath. Walking the course of the world, following the wrong prince and the wrong spirit. We're dead. And we deserve it. Now the greatest two words in the Bible. The greatest two words in the entire Bible, Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God. Man, we're dead. We're children of wrath. We deserve that, but God. But God. This is where the worst news in the world suddenly becomes the gospel. The worst news in the entire world, the worst condition in the entire world suddenly becomes the gospel. This is the hinge of the gospel where we go from the bad news to but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Wait, why? Why what we're about to see, the grace of God, the mercy of God unfolded, let's not breeze past that. Why is he about to show us this? Because he loved us. But God, because he loved us, because he loved you, is about to show you. So remember how I was just ranting about how you deserve hell? Remember that? Like a couple minutes ago. You deserve hell. But God, because he loves you, is going to completely change that narrative. Our God loves us enough to do something about what I deserve. That's, if you walk out of here with anything, right? that's why you're not allowed to leave during the first half of the sermon because you've got to hear, yes, this is what we deserve, but God is willing to do something about what we deserve. Look at verse five and six and seven. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Even when we were dead, he made us alive. And look at what happens. Look at what happens. He raises us up with him. He seats us with him, right? Me, the God that I have no business being in fellowship with, the God that I have no business being in his presence, he raises me up and then seats me with him in a relationship. I, I don't belong in his house. And he says, hey, you come and sit with me. That is the message of the gospel to you in this room. Are you living that? 
He has seated us with him. He has, he has brought us. Do you feel like you are seated with him in your life? Whether you are far from Christ, whether you have never walked down this road, whether you walked down this road when you were a kid or last year and you just walk around healing people and have an amazing walk with Christ, are you walking in intimacy with Jesus Christ? No matter where you are on that spectrum, are you seated with him in that kind of a relationship? What happened for me to get here? Last few questions we're going to unpack in these last few verses is what happened for me to get here? How did this happen and why did this happen, right? So what happened for me to get here is the wrath of God got poured out on Jesus Christ. The wrath of God still got poured out, but out of his love for me, it got poured out on Jesus Christ. At the beginning of, uh, of our time, right at 7, we sang a song. Guys up here led us in some worship, and it was, uh, it was the Lamb of God. And man, if you don't come from a church background, uh, and you walk in and you're like, man, these people are really into lambs, right? It's weird that we sing, we sing about lambs. We're actually going to sing a song later after the sermon that Brett wrote about it a little over a year ago. That's an incredible song. It's, it's about this lamb of God, right? And you're like, man, what is up with Christians and lambs, right? In the Old Testament, but the way that God has been telling his story throughout history, man, is so beautiful. He's holy and righteous. We don't deserve him, but he loves us enough, and he says, man, I want these people, man. I love these people. I want them. I want to pave a way, right? And so what he does is he sets up this system to say, hey, you sacrifice, right? You sacrifice these animals, and what that is is that's not like the thing that does it, right? It's not like, oh, you sacrifice this animal as a ritual. You sacrifice this animal as an act of your faith that you are putting your faith in saying, hey, I'm going to sacrifice this animal because I know your wrath. I, I know I, I don't deserve it. And so this is going to appease your wrath because it is a just wrath and we are a wicked people and our default is wickedness. And our default is to, to look at you, a holy God, and say, man, I don't want you on the throne. I want to be on the throne. And so he sets up this whole system. And so we see this picture of this idea of a lamb being slaughtered, right? A lamb being bled and put on the altar before God as an act of faith to say, man, I know that I need a blood sacrifice. And it was this picture that God was doing in the Old Testament of allowing them to do this and setting this up so that, so that when the time came, when the perfect time came, that God would ordain this perfect lamb to come and once and for all pay for the sins of the world. God's son, Jesus Christ. That's the what of how we, how we get this relationship with him. The gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who is perfect, who is the one who didn't deserve death. And God said, I'm gonna pour my wrath out on him out of my love for you people. Out of, my, out of my love for you broken people who don't have it all together, out of my love for you, I'm gonna pour my wrath out on Jesus. He's not gonna stay dead, I'm gonna raise him, but he is going to suffer. He is going to be the perfect lamb. So the entire Old Testament, all leading up to this, this moment in time, this moment in history, 2,000 years ago, where he then poured out his wrath on the perfect Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so when we sing Lamb of God, and when you sing Lamb of God, let's not just sing Christianese terms. Let's acknowledge that this was the sacrifice that allows me to come and worship, allows me to come and lean into the God of the universe, gives me joy and freedom and life abundantly that God provides and allows me freedom from this sin that just won't let go of me, and yet I'm free from it because of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So it's this what that has happened. That's what he's talking about when he says 
even when you were dead in your trespasses, made alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It's messy. So why did this grace happen? Remember, because of his love. And how did this grace happen? Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How does he do this? How does he save us? How does a bunch of broken people actually enter into this relationship with the God of the universe who who offers us something better? By grace. By grace through faith. So what's our responsibility? What's our responsibility? Is this just an all-powerful God that says, man, I'm going to give grace to these people who are my favorite? What's our responsibility in this? Let's look at Scripture. By grace you have been saved through faith. So what does Scripture say? There's through faith. And whose faith? It's our faith. So my faith in Jesus Christ, my faith in Jesus Christ, I believe is a gift from God. Do I believe him? Do I believe he said he was who he was? Do I believe he was that, that he claimed to be? The God made man, God's perfect lamb sacrificed for me. Do I, do I believe that? And not just do I believe that intellectually. Not just, yeah, yeah, of course I do. I probably wouldn't have shown up to a church service on a Wednesday night if I didn't have some inkling of like, yeah, maybe there's something along. Yeah, maybe, right? But do I believe that? Do I really have faith in that? And not just intellectually, not just emotionally, right? Not just emotionally am I, yes, I'm surrendered to him, but is it, is it coming out of my life? Right? Is, there, is there a tangible result that verifies, man, my faith is really in this God. I really have surrendered my life. I think the best abstract illustration I could give for such an abstract concept is marriage to my wife, right? So I believe I love my wife and am married to her, right? I have this belief and this faith, and that faith isn't just, oh, an intellectual acknowledgement that I am in love with my wife and, and that what we have is this, this faith and love relationship where we're, you know, this covenant bond, Right? It's not just an intellectual thing. Yes, it's like an intellectual box that, yeah, she's my wife, and I know that. But it's also a very emotional thing. But it's not always just an emotional thing either. There's other layers to that. It's a covenant faithfulness that I have. And I can look at my life, and I can look at our relationship. And when I say, no, I really believe, I have faith, I love this woman. And not just because intellectually I'm like, yeah, I'm supposed to love her, and that's the deal. That's what I signed up for 10 years ago. And not just not just you know, when my affections are stirred for her. But I have to look at my life too. Is there action of that love? Is there a result? Is there a response to the love I have? And so here's how that would play out. Um, it would play out by me serving her. It would play out by me helping change diapers, right? It would, it would play out by me providing for her and, and caring for her well and being sensitive to her needs and, and, and loving her with gifts and with quality time and taking her on dates and all of those things that, kind of earn you points in the marriage game, right? Those are all results. Those are all results of my love. And catch this, because this is so important, and we get this backwards so often. Those things that I do, those good things that I do in our marriage because I love my wife, those are a result of the fact that I love my wife and I have a relationship with her. And so because I have this relationship with her, those good works should organically happen. They should happen in my life. Those should be produced in my marriage because of that. Those are not the things that earn my love. 
right? I don't do those things. I don't pick up my towel on the floor so that I will love her or should love her or she will love me in response. I do it because I love her. And that's the gospel. So often we put the cart before the horse. We think, well, if I do these good things, if I stop doing all these bad things, then God will love me. Hey, he is telling you tonight, I love you. He's telling you tonight, I love you right where you're at. I love you. Broken, mess, the whole thing, I love you. Well, I'm not religious enough. I'm not good enough. I can't seem to shake this pattern, this habit, this sin. I love you where you're at. But yes, I have called you to put your faith and surrender and follow me and put your belief in me, not just intellectually, not just affectionately, with, with all of you surrendering to where there should be these good works that almost verify, that verify that relationship we have. And if you've never stepped into that relationship, praise God that you're here. Praise God that you're here in this. And I don't know what God's going to do in your heart tonight, but I pray that you hear this and you'll never be able to shake it. You'll never be able to shake it. And you'll always remember, wait, okay, so this isn't just about religion. This isn't just about following the list. This isn't about being good enough. This is about a God who recognizes I can't do it and is wanting to save me. And what's he asking in return? For me to surrender to him. For me to stop trying to be my own God. For me to stop pursuing my own glory, my own comfort, and recognize that he is good and he is better and he is this lamb that was paid for me. And come to him and put my faith in Jesus in every way that looks. And at first it's going to look one way and as you mature, you're going to find new ways, new, new levels of maturity, new things that he's going to ask you to surrender. That's what he's asking for. That's what he's looking towards. And make no mistake, there should be good works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. For, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Part of our purpose exists for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. If there's not good works in our life, then we should stop and say, man, what's going on? Why am I either disconnected from the life that I have been called to and am saved in, or maybe I'm not in Christ. Because there should be good works in your life, man. If, if you have Jesus, if you surrendered to that, then there should be fruit from that. Our hearts should break over, over sex trafficking. Our hearts should break over, over the homeless, right? Our hearts should break over those who are marginalized. Our hearts should break over those who are far from him. Our hearts should break over those who are going through their life dead, and we should step into those and say, how can we be the hands and feet of Jesus? How can we serve people? How can we love people? How can we care for people? How can we do a little glimpse of what he has done for us? Not to earn his love, but in response to the love and the commitment that he has made to us that isn't connected to us deserving it at all or us earning it, which means we can't lose it. That is beautiful. So for the person who is in this room who is in Christ, man, would tonight be this calling back to this beautiful gospel? Would tonight be this opportunity where you lean into that beautiful gospel that maybe it was when you were a kid, maybe it was recently in your life, and say, God, would I walk in that newness of life more and more, more deeply? Look at your life and say, man, are some of, are some of the things in my life I'm doing still disrupting this fellowship? Not separating me from eternity, but disrupting what God wants for me as he's called me to sit with him and instead, I'm wandering and playing in the mud when he's called me to this palace. Leaning into that and saying, Lord, you are better. Would my faith increase? Peg him for that. 
And if you're in this room and, man, you, you don't know why you're here and you're wrestling with this, God has you here for a reason. I, I think it is not a coincidence you're here, and I think he's going to get you. I think he's going to get you. I, I don't think it was a coincidence that you showed up. I think he's going to get you. And I think that's going to be a really, really beautiful thing. And that might scare the crap out of you, and you may be like, what does that mean? He's going to get me. He has something better for you. And he has called you to something so much better and so much more beautiful. And my prayer is that this Holy Spirit starts tugging and pushing. And you don't know what it is, but tonight's like, hey, I want you. I want you to come to me and surrender to me. Man, my hope is today, tonight, you would do that. You would look at the truth of the gospel. You would look at that beautiful thing of how we were dead, deserving of his wrath, but God came in and rescued us. Through Christ Jesus, he came in and rescued us. Why? Because he loves us. And no matter where you are tonight, don't go to sleep tonight without hearing over and over and over and over again the fact that you have a father in heaven who loves you to the point that he would do whatever it takes to reconcile you to himself. Man, we love you. Man, would we apply that to our life more and more and be changed by that. In the name of Jesus, let me pray. Father, please do this. Please do this work in all of our lives, God. Um, we want you to. We need you to. Holy Spirit, for so many of us, we need that Holy Spirit conviction because so, for so many of us, the gospel has become white noise. The gospel has been the thing that we hear tacked on to the end of a sermon or the thing that when we were a kid, our parents told us over and over again or our grandparents and God, it's been white noise. Lord, tonight, would we be able to sing about the Lamb of God and would you renew our affections for you in a deeper way? Would we stare face to face with what we deserve in a way that humbles us to produce worship for you that's sweet? God, draw us to more maturity. Would we look at the gospel in a way we acknowledge ourselves, we acknowledge you, we acknowledge how you have bridged the gap between us. We remember those words at the end of all that bad news, but God, we know where we were headed, but God, Father, would we sit with you? Would we worship you? Would we surrender our life to you in every way? Spirit, show us where we're not surrendered, God. Show us the things we're still trying to hold on to, the things we're still trying to control. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's in his name we pray.